0: everyone to episode five of Robot Thought Leaders. This week, Zach and I are joined by Sam Bouchard from Robotique. Sam is the co-founder and CEO of Robotique. He started it about 13 years ago. Sam has seen Robotique through, through, uh, through two major uh, recessions already. So uh, he brings with him a lot of experience in how to grow a startup all the way into a very mature robotics company. So hey, thank you, Sam, for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for the invite. Good to see you virtually. Yes. Yeah, looking forward to Once the discussion. Again, yeah. we missed you
0: this year up in Canada. We wish we could have gotten up there to see you at the annual event, but maybe sometime soon. Yeah, hopefully. Cool. So without further ado, let's just jump into it. Um, Sam, thank you for joining us today. Uh, you, you've had a long and illustrious career, uh, well-known, you've published books. Uh, you've been with Robotique for 13 years. Robotique has grown tremendously you know under your uh, supervisor uh, ship and so I I really wanted to kind of go all the way back to the beginning uh, to ask you the first question and really find out about what motivated you to want to work in robotics like back when you were in high school maybe and as a child even like what were your interests uh, really to drive the interest that you're uh, you know going after now
1: yeah so i've decided to go in robotics pretty late in uh in my school uh, curriculum so i was studying engineering and i had an internship at the robotics lab uh over a summer and it really connected to other part of my story which is uh, i've done a lot of uh, manual work uh, as a kid uh, doing summer jobs and stuff like that and i was really amazed to see how robotics could just be a better way to do things uh, more efficiently and uh, and really embark on our mission of freeing human hands so really uh, it's it's always been uh, amazing to me to see uh, those repetitive tasks g- being done again and again and to to me I, I know that human has uh, have a lot more potential than this and uh, that just connected and that was the the beginning and that's where I met uh, my other co-f- co-founders as well JP and Vincent that was
0: gonna and ask that. Was, you.
1: yeah that was really the beginning so we were sharing uh, offices and we started to discuss to uh, start the company mm-hmm. and uh, the beginning was very humble we um, uh, we just worked for a year without any salary without, from our own money. Uh, Vincent got a job as a professor at TTS in Montreal. He's still there today. And, and then from the first product, first sales, a little bit of uh, funding, local funding, angel funding from people around us. We bootstrapped it for about a decade before getting some external investors. Very good. So uh, pardon me, where were you going to school at the time? It's Laval University here in Quebec City. Uh, so under professor carl Clément Gasselin. So it was really nice. It was a great, g- great fun uh, just doing new robotics. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of great work being done there. And, and there was a lot of potential, a lot of potential in the technologies, uh, but also again, in the people. And because the, the industry was not so developed, it's still not today that developed. It's still a small mm-hmm. industry. Uh, we saw a lot of potential in, in both the technology and obviously the, the talent pool that was gravitating around the lab. Yeah, Laval is a
0: well-known robotics, uh, at least it seems to be producing a lot of uh, candidates for the robotic industry these yep. days. So back then, was it as kind of popular for robotics as it is now, or was it kind of uh, just starting?
1: Yeah, no, that lab was already uh, well-known, and the, I was talking about the internship I had the first uh, summer. The goal was to prepare some demos for visitors because there was uh, an inter- international conference in robotics and i didn't realize until that event where i saw all those researchers from all around the world coming visiting the lab and looking at the the stuff that was being done there and uh, and seeing all the interest and the questions that's when i really realized oh there there might be uh, something good here and uh, i didn't realize it uh, uh before before that yeah. visit
0: cool and that was electrical engineering or mechanical you were doing
1: or yeah it was mechanical back then so lots of uh, mechanical and controls work so cool um,
0: so yeah, was- and your co-founders, JPJ, for example, we've seen him perform on stage at the Rock, and uh, how much of an entertainer he is. For yeah. those of you who didn't have the opportunity to see him, uh, he's one of the few people that I know are truly uh, comfortable doing a live demo. And by live demo, I don't mean just programming the robot on the fly. He's usually juggling, he's usually reciting some prose. He's kind of doing <laughs> a little bit of everything. So you yeah. mentioned that you were sitting next to him. Um, in like a similar cubicle or something and you just kind of yeah. met him and, and that's how it started or
1: yeah exactly he was a research engineer at the lab so uh he, he had done his master's and he had been hired by the lab to help the other students to do their projects uh so that's how i met him and uh, he has a very interesting uh, background where he's mixing uh, very different influence so he's been a, a world-class circus artist for several years wow and uh, and that's why it, it took he it took him a longer time to to finish his mechanical engineering degrees. Hmm. But for several years, he toured the world and just did the, he had a, he was doing a unicycle and juggling. So <laughs> once in a while, he puts this all back together and uh, entertain us, which is always great.
0: That's very good. Can you tell us about your other co-founder as well?
1: Yeah. So Vincent is a third co-founder. Uh, so he's still a shareholder in the company. He's not on a day-to-day operations, uh, but we have a research share with him at ETS, which is a technical university in Montreal. And he's really working on next generation technologies. Um, so Vincent has a uh, Great background in in uh, human robot collaboration and sensor design, mm-hmm. and uh, so he's really uh, kind of pushing the envelope, doing things that would be hard to do within the company because we have more deadlines, we need to ship products and bring products to market. Yet he's kind of uh, on the side and has a little bit more freedom to explore new ideas, new technologies, that eventually feeds uh, within our product roadmap.
0: Very cool, kind of the academia touch. You still have that connection back to academia, which yeah. fuels a lot of the research, I'm sure. Wow. Yep. Yeah.
1: And explains yeah. really how you're
0: able to diversify your portfolio at Robotique so much, you know, from humble beginnings of four storey sensors to now everything else that you carry on your line. It makes a lot of sense. Yep. Yeah. So, so,
2: what was the first? What was your first business idea when you guys said, "Let's let's put this together"? Um, was it to free your hands? Was that the first idea that you had had, or what was your target when you first uh, started?
1: You know, we explored very broadly back then. Uh, so back then there was the, the automate show didn't exist in the U S it was the vision, the robot and vision show. Mm-hmm. And the, the year we started was probably the worst edition ever of that show because uh, so we we're in, in the middle of uh, economic uh, turmoil right now, but the last time it happened, it was the year we, we founded the company. So if you would visit the robot and vision show that year, you would see robots in crates and, and companies would not even bother unwrapping them to show them at the show. It was uh, at that level.
0: So yeah. it was 08, 09.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So so we looked at this and we weren't sure what would come next. And uh, so we explored many, many different uh, markets. We explored uh, underwater robots. uh, We explored military robots. uh, uh, We explored other other things also outside of hands because there were many different technologies. uh, Some not only hands, but also some uh, robot architecture to do all sorts of different things. So we explored a lot and eventually circle circle back and came back to manufacturing with the first uh, product which was the the three-fingered hand mm. that had been developed for uh, space applications for nuclear applications so cool. it was a, a rugged robot design but uh, we, it took us a little while to to find how to fit it within the manufacturing so mm. the first couple of years was a lot of exploration and a lot of driving around and uh, I, I tell that story in the preface of lean robotics is uh uh, it took a, it took a while to realize that this product was not the right fit for the market. Sure. And, uh, and also to realize that the problem we're trying to solve, uh, there was bigger, there were bigger problems that we should be uh, tackling. So even though it was a lot of work, it was also useful. And I think very, uh, it's still foundational to what we do today.
2: Awesome. And, and then the next product ended up being your, the force torque sensor or i because I know this I want to get into the story of you at the A3 conference and sort of the the two finger uh, I think the 2F85 two, two finger gripper but the four stroke sensor came before that
1: no the well the technology came uh, in similar times before okay. we even started the company uh, there was some work being done in technology but the first product was that three fingered hand and the, the A3 business forum that I I missed for the first time last year for a personal mm-hmm. uh, commitment and this year unfortunately because we cannot go I've attended every event of, of A3 and I've always really liked that event. And at the very beginning, I, I didn't have any clue about the industry and who, who were the players and, and, and how this industry worked. So we really came from the technology background. And I just brought a prototype in my luggage. Uh, so a GP had built that that prototype. Uh, so I, I had my, my little suitcase with the hand in it. Like and I would just it open it and, it, and, it and show it to anybody would be willing to give me <laughs> five minutes of attention. Uh, so that was my first uh, A3 event. Uh, and then the second product was a simplified version. So that was the two-figure uh, gripper. And then we did the four sensor, we did the camera and, mm-hmm. and then really diversified. Uh, and the end goal or the, the phase we're in right now is, is to bring this back together around application. So that's mm-hmm. more the, what's, what's the future is holding for robotique. Yep, Awesome. Mm-hmm.
0: So in the beginning when, you know, you were just getting started, how was the dynamic with three co-founders how did you manage it? Did you all kind of feel like instinctively and find out what your roles were, or did you formalize it? You know, from the very beginning. How did the dynamics go early on?
1: Yeah, well, it it uh, very naturally. I took more the commercial aspects. JP took more the product and the technical aspects. So that's kind of how we we split it at the beginning, uh, and to this day, it's a, it's still a little bit like that. Uh, I was very lucky to really find two co-founders with whom I get along very well. We don't always think alike, but we have the same goals. We share the same values. And I kind of realized that a few years down the road, uh, that I was really lucky to stumble upon co-founders who really, uh, really wanted to bring the company at the same place as I wanted. So it's great to have diversity and see things differently and approach problems differently uh but uh you always you also need to uh, have the same end goal and the same uh, the same values the same personal values which is the case so mm-hmm. it worked out well yeah mm-hmm.
0: uh can you talk and zach usually loves to ask this line of questioning so i'm gonna ask the first one and hand it off to him but you mentioned bootstrapping it in the mm-hmm. in the beginning uh you know zach's the money guy so yeah uh, you mentioned bootstrapping it how did you manage all that stuff you had a great idea for a you needed some money for some prototypes. You were throwing it all together for yourself. Were you paying your own salaries out of your own pockets? Like, how was it going?
1: Yep, so uh, we, we bootstrap uh, out of necessity, as much as as it was an objective. So we we tried to raise some money at the beginning, mm. uh, and obviously, I mean, it was uh, way too early, and and our ideas were way too fuzzy, and we didn't know the market, we didn't know the, we didn't know the problem we wanted to solve. So it was a little bit out of necessity that we bootstrapped at the beginning. Uh, in the end, I, I'm glad we could do it because it really. we just had to focus on the product and on the problem we wanted to solve. Mm -hmm. So for the first year, we didn't pay ourselves any salary. Uh, So we just lived on on some money we had saved uh, before. Uh, So that was uh, what happened for the first year. And then the second year, we started to do sales. And we also have the chance uh, up here in Canada to have some fund for R&D development. So some R&D grants and things like that. So we kind of grew like this. So developing the product, increasing their sales, get a bit of funding. And so that's, mm. that's kind of how we did it. Nice. Mm. And so
2: when, at what point were you able to hire your, you know, first employees that were not co-founders?
1: Uh, I think it was uh, after the second year, we hired uh, another graduate from, uh, from the lab. And uh, yeah, so it was very, so it was more on the product development side yep. at the beginning. And that was like uh, 2011, or uh, yeah, around that, yeah, 2010, 2011.
2: Mm. So I, you know, had enough sales at that point to be able to pay yourselves salary, or you you were not able to pay a salary even at that point to yourselves?
1: Mm. No, we started uh, paying us paying us a salary uh, after the first year, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, which was good because we were starting to uh, have some kids as well. So <laughs> Families, uh,
0: yeah, they're expensive.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they eat these little these little monsters
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then and then what when did you what was the point of inflection for you like what and i'm sure there was probably many right so at what point was it like okay this is going to be big
1: the um, as you say it's uh it's it's really it's really that flyway that yeah you keep pushing and that starts spinning and there's no clear clear push that makes the, the whole difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely I'd say the, the, the first point of, it, of inflection was the second product. So the simplified version version of the gripper mm-hmm. combined with, uh, uh, us starting to find the right channel to, uh, to sell our products. So it was really that combination of the right product and the right channel. So we can really, uh, increase, increase the sales.
2: And when, what was the timing of that?
1: Uh, I'm really bad with dates. Uh, I believe the timing must have been around 2011 or 12. Um, so we're really lucky. Again, timing is, uh, is very important and you got to take these opportunities when they present themselves. And there was a big distributor event in town. They were coming to a, a local venue. And uh, so it was kind of an opportunity. All the, a lot of the key partners we still have today, they all gathered in town for uh, an industry meeting Really? Uh, back then. So we invited them and that was the beginning. We started to, uh, to do business with them. And, wow. uh, yeah. At AMC. It was, well, AMC was one of them, but there were many others uh, distributors that we still work with today. Uh, it was an HTD meeting that wow. was in, in town, Quebec so. city. They had an AHTD yeah. meeting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that must again. have been a
2: nice, uh, a nice, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, AHTD meeting up there. Wow. So that, I mean, that, that is, uh, I didn't know that that's very interesting. And I'm sure that, at that point, you know, it was almost like this is just a, a, a awesome opportunity.
1: Yeah, exactly. So timing, I, I, I would like to uh, give myself uh, so much credit for the success. I got to say that obviously having a great team and, and the timing is very important. I mean, yeah. being at the right place at the right time, uh, you got to catch these opportunities and make the most out of them. Yep. Mm.
2: That's awesome. Cool.
0: Yep. So maybe we can fast forward a little bit, because one of the other things we really wanted to talk about to you today was obviously your book, um, because I think we've all read your book. Mm -hmm. I probably personally have recommended it to, you know, two dozen people at least. Uh, I gave out all my books. I you gave him
2: out and I, I even, uh, I called <laughs> my dad this morning who lives pretty close. And I was like, Hey, like, do you have a book? I really want to show it on the podcast. Just so Sam believes me I've, uh, but I've, I've read it front to back two or three times and I've handed out, I think I've been given probably 10 copies and I don't have any more of them because I've given them all out. Um, yeah. but it, and I don't read a whole lot of books. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely more of an audio book guy, mm-hmm. but, uh, I have read that book. It is, you know, Chris said, don't fangirl here. Um, but it's hard not to, because it, it really shapes, it shapes my mindset and it, and it helps to understand what, what is really needed when you go through a project like that. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's used those mentalities and the aspects from that book I use every single day. So, you know, first of all, thank you. Um, but second of all, what gave you the inspiration to do that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Well, how, needless uh, to say, we've never written a book, so (laughs) we're interested well, thanks for the feedback and thanks for the good words. The, the ideas was really, I think uh, in, in my own personality, I love to learn and I'm also a big uh, audiobook uh, user. I'm a heavy user of Audible. Uh, so I like to learn and I like to share also what I learned and I like I like to apply what I learned. And uh, as the first uh, salesperson in the company talking to customers every day and getting asked the same questions all the time, I really realized that uh, there was a need for that kind of information and again i I tried to tap into everybody's brain uh, around me everybody's brain within the company and put this uh, in the book and that was also a point where we wanted to uh, establish ourselves as robot thought leader cobot thought leader and really uh show the big plan that we had in mind yes we're building components we're building plug and play components but the end goal is really to simplify the deployment of the whole application so even though we didn't have all the pieces uh, to build the applications, we had the, the mindset of looking at the whole application. So that was uh, part personal, part for the business. And uh, and I, what I did is I just uh, uh, froze uh, four days a week, uh, four hours a day, four days a week for four months. So four was the, the key number that summer yeah. uh, and just focused. And I had uh, Kate Stern helping me. She was an editor just challenging me trying to make it more simple and uh, and more readable and uh, and we launched it at our first uh, robotic user conference in uh, 2017 so uh, yeah mm. so did you, you wrote it in 2017 yep yeah and four hours on, a day
0: yep. four hours yep.
1: per, yeah
2: yeah and it was all based on feedback that you had personally gotten you know from being and talking to customers just with the so does that change your mindset? Not change your mindset. Does that give you that mindset as being a CEO of having that ground level approach? Because the knowledge that you had gained there was really because you were directly talking to customers, directly walking on their floors, and understanding their their challenges. And you put yourself in the shoes of you know the customer and your you know ground level employee potentially.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Is that how you see? Being the right CEO is somebody that to stay in, you have to stay in touch. Uh,
1: it's very important to stay in touch. It, it really f- uh, feeds me a lot to visit factories, uh, talk to uh, anybody in the team, talk to customers, talk to partners, talk to you guys. At the same time, as the company evolves, also does uh, the CEO CEO role. So it's good to understand, but at some point you got to realize that your job is not to do everything on your own. Your job is really to share this knowledge and, and empower uh, yeah. and enable so people are enabled really to take the lead on these. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's good to have that understanding, uh, but it's good to understand too, that you, you gotta empower people so they can do it. Uh, so it's that, that fine balance and that evolution that uh, I personally need to do. And so does the, many people within the company who've been with us for a while, uh, were also very much in the action at the beginning, but now are evolving more to manager, manager's role. So they gotta leverage that expertise, but sometimes they have to refrain from uh, jumping in and doing the job uh, themselves. Yeah. So that that's part of the my learning and and uh, a lot of uh, robotic old timers learning these days. Were you uh,
0: were you a lean manufacturing you know uh, black belt or anything before you started to? Right, and categorize the, those thoughts into the lean framework for lean robotics, or you know, how did that kind of connection happen
1: in the beginning? Yeah, no, I was not. Uh, I was not a lean manufacturing expert. So I still don't consider myself as a lean manufacturing expert. I'm uh, a lean startup uh, disciple for sure. I'm. I, I really like those ideas of closing yeah. the loop, getting feedback, and, and iterating from there. And I thought too, the technology we were developing, and obviously all the collaborative robot market, was really into that mindset. It, was not that big top-down approach and let's change the whole factory it's more that continuous improvement reducing the waste etc and also what i wanted to do is really i didn't want to invent yet another framework so people need to 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 learn mm-hmm. i really wanted to attach this to some tools that people already had it um so it, it kind of came to mind uh, one day i was uh doing a bike ride in, in the forest here in the winter. And uh, yeah, why don't why, you know, we combine these two ideas of lean manufacturing and robotics, which could not really happen in the past because a big industrial robot is not very lean. It's very high performance, mm-hmm. but usually it's kind of that big thing in the middle. That's very hard to, uh, to iterate. Yeah. It's really it's that an instrument. Yeah, it does. Yep. Yep. But the, the collaborative robots approach enabled lean robotics. So uh, that's how it, it all came together.
0: Okay, cool. And so I think one of the most uh, interesting parts of the book is the graphics, actually, because I think the words say a lot, of course, and they're awesome to listen to on Audible. But when you're trying to, you know, get a fleeting salesperson's attention, Mm -hmm. sometimes you can just say, look, these graphics are very nice. And Mm -hmm. it kind of like grabs their attention, and gets them hooked. So were you kind of thinking that your book was going to be very graphic? um, uh, And I don't mean that in a, you know, the sense of graphic, but it was going to have a lot of illustrations in it from the very beginning. Um, or, you know, how did you design those kind of things? Because it's got wonderful charts and uh, diagrams. And did you build those? those?
1: Uh, yeah, build I them? I build the the, the rough uh, sketches, and that's really that's very much how my brain works. Is uh, I'm really thinking more uh, geometrically than, than than other ways. So, to me, it's that's just how naturally I try to frame my ideas and explain my ideas. Uh, and I think many people are, are like me and maybe many people in the engineering and in the sales uh, yeah. role like to see those images. So, uh, that's the best. I mean, the content is amazing, but I think seeing the
2: content and then being able to visualize it in a book, it's not, I mean, not that it's not a good audio book, but it, it really, when you read it, it's just, it's so content heavy because you can actually see what's like going on right in front of you and you can, and you can really absorb it. So for me, I'm definitely like a paint by numbers guy. You know, I just, I need to see it, you know, out there. And it, that was what did it for me. That's why I love the book so much.
1: Yeah, yeah. Great. So maybe we should revisit some uh, infographics around the book. Yeah.
2: We, I would agree. I would yeah. also like to ask you Is are you going to, are you thinking of a series? Will there be a second book? Have you thought of anything to follow?
1: I think the, the, the content is still valid. Uh, what we're doing right now on our e-learning platform is really applying the concept to specific applications. Yep. And, and hopefully in 10 years, uh, the book will be irrelevant. So if we do our job at simplifying the technology and making the technology powerful enough, hopefully that whole process uh, that takes many, many steps today will be really compressed and simplified. So that's one of my goals: is to make my own work irrelevant in the next ten years. Yep, well, that's, a, that's a great goal. Mm-hmm. Awesome.
2: So let's so, talk about uh, maybe like where where we're at today, and and, and how uh, and how things are within mm-hmm. within Robotic. Obviously, you guys have had a lot of success, but if you could think about what what do you think is, if you can think about one aspect, and that's probably a really difficult question, but what one aspect has created the success at Robotique? If you had to pick one, and, and granted, I know everyone wants to go. Oh, I can't pick one, but if you had to mm-hmm. pick one,
1: well, I think it's definitely the people. It's it's definitely the team. Uh, I mean, if if you look at the the company, uh, what it is, and what we what we invest in, and what we spend our our, our day trying to uh, to to improve, it's everything we do starts with the people, uh, and we're really lucky to have some very uh, Good key people around us, and still today from the very beginning mm-hmm. uh, and if you have good people, you have good products, if you have good products it 's easier to do the sales it 's easier to build a brand it 's easier to get the partnership and and i mean you've you 've been around some some of our team members and you came to oh, yeah. uh, the user conference and uh, that 's really what what was uh, always amazing after the the robotic user conference is getting that feedback on uh, on the experience that people had, and obviously again that experience. Uh, it comes first and foremost from the people they interact with. So,
0: yeah,
1: mm. it may sound cliché, but it really does feel like family. It is, yeah, room. Mm. yeah. So, how,
2: how do you how do you keep good people?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, you gotta define who you are and who you want to be, mm-hmm. and and attract the people that you want to attract. Attract the people who will fit in your culture and in the culture you want to build. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. and uh, and then the second thing, so it's uh, it's really creating the right environment for these people. So understanding what drives people and uh, how you can uh, align their motivation with the business uh, needs and the business uh, uh, ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's really the, the whole idea. So
2: how hmm. much of your time and energy as a CEO would you say goes back into understanding the culture, keeping the people, you know, driven and happy and not you know not to say keeping them retained but really making it so that they want to stay at at the company
1: i'd say 50% of my time is really on people topics so meeting one-on-ones with the executive team um uh, communicating with the team especially these days communicating the the strategy keeping in touch despite distance etc i'd say half of half of my time is related to uh, wow yeah
2: Yeah. I mean, you, you, I always wonder what, what it, I mean, it kind of becomes a little bit HR like at that Mm -hmm. point because, and the more focused you are on, I feel like the human resource aspect as the CEO, you probably have a higher rate of retention as well.
1: Yeah. I, uh, it, time is, is one thing. And, uh, obviously, uh, the, the energy you put into this. So it's not only, it's like going to the gym. You can spend two hours at the gym and not, not lift anything and you won't get any results. So it's really also the intent and the energy you put it there. And I don't pretend we're perfect. Uh, we have a lot of things that we need to improve. Sure. Uh, but at least it shows that we care and uh, we're uh, we're really taking the actions and not only uh, listening, but also taking actions to always try to improve. And it's, I mean, it's a, you, you'll never get to a, a perfect uh, workplace. Uh, it's really, again, part of that continuous improvement, continuous learning mindset, and uh, we can always be better. And, and again, if we, if we are better on that front, we're going to be better everywhere because everything that we do starts with the people.
0: Sure. So it was interesting. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on your, your management style. And I asked that because last week when we were talking to Etienne, he yep. mentioned that you know he had a lot of growth with his management style over time. Obviously, as their company is yep. continuing to grow, and one of his core you know pieces of uh, advice or mantras was always create value for the customer. Mm-hmm. And he actually used that to drive a lot of how he even shaped the teams internally, externally, commercial, technical, all that kind of stuff. So, what is your mantra when it comes to management style? And how have you grown from, you know, the early days of robotique to where you are now after probably a lot of organizational shifts and restructuring?
1: Yeah, so it is very interesting. And uh, that's part of my own personal journey is that at every stage of the company, you kind of need to reinvent or learn the new CEO job. And at at the beginning, when you're two people, it's just, uh, we got to do it. We got to make it work. And you, you put as many hours as you can, then you get a a small group and it's easy. But then when things get bigger, you have more communication and you need to really uh, detach yourself and and look further and give some perspective to people. So I I don't have any uh, mantra that that stuck with me the the whole way. I just think what's been common is definitely you got to realize that the context change and you got to realize that your role also change and uh, you got to kind of re-qualify for the job, uh, which is – which is the challenge uh, because uh, you don't necessarily have someone to, to tell you this. But to me, it's it's just really important to understand that the context change and that you need to evolve if you want your company to evolve. And uh, that's always uh, how I've approached it. I think the bring value to the customer is definitely a key point. And I think that's uh, part of our DNA at Robotic as well. But what you got to realize too is how do you capture value as well, which is another another challenge. So the early learning of the company was okay Mm -hmm. you gotta create value you gotta solve a customer's problem and then you gotta tweak the 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 business model so not only you create value for the customer but you also capture a fair amount of value so you can keep uh, both sides growing at the same time and i think that's a challenge in robotics in general because to create value requires quite a lot of work as you guys know it's it's a lot of work to sell these things support these things do the engineering around them, do the support, etc. So
2: the training, uh, the yeah. everything around it. And one thing that's always been really amazing about the company is about Robotique is that your content has always been so like next step. And I would say I, I made the joke on um, Alex uh, Paré's, uh, interview that because uh, Catherine uh, Bernier works there now and I made the joke yep. that I used to, I would steal her presentations back in the, you know, 20, 2017. And mm-hmm. I, because the, the content was just so good that I was, I need that now, you know, and um, even later and, you know, probably a couple of years later, I, I would steal, you know, Michelle's as well. So it, it's just uh, you get, you guys have always had such great content. Um, and I think that you've always added a lot of value to the end customer and i and i always wondered you added so much value but you know in in some cases it it was really given away for free so yeah. how do you balance the fact of you know giving away so a lot of value and trying to also capture um, revenue at the same time without sacrificing or pushing customers away
1: yep yeah, that's a great question and i think especially this year it's really paying up dividends uh, and when we started to create all of this content, again, it was more out of necessity than out of strategy. So we started, we didn't have any marketing, uh, money. We didn't have any, uh, any resource to do trade shows and things like that. And I was coming from a different industry, which was, uh, it was a web-based business around real estate. So very competitive on the web. And when, uh, I switched to the manufacturing and to the robotics world, I, it was a really big open green field where the marketing was, it was all the, those ideas of content marketing, and uh, it was not there at all so we didn't have money we had time we had those ideas so we started doing it and it really that's really that's been the foundation of of all of our marketing effort is uh, creating uh, content that is valuable for people Mm -hmm. uh, which brings us some attention brings us some some good contacts and and we start building relationship with partners with customers like this so it's true that it's creating a lot of value and we don't capture it immediately the great thing is that you know, this year there are no face-to-face trade shows, and our digital marketing machine has been in, in place for so many years. And and the starting point was all of that content marketing. So you're ahead of the uh, game. I, well, in the in the end, again, it's uh, it was out of necessity, but uh, this year it, it really paid dividends. Hmm.
2: So one question I always ask, and uh, and Chris is always you know painstakingly letting me ask it. But um, so if we, if we talk a little bit about metrics, one thing I find interesting is how every company looks at metrics differently, but I'm I'm curious of what metric you have that you look at that you feel sets yourself apart from other companies or lets you know the health of your business currently that maybe others don't look at as often. And obviously you could easily say revenue, but what, give me something more than that, that you really look to, to determine the health now and, you know, maybe short-term health of the company.
1: Mm, This is uh, also an interesting question, and uh, and that relates to also uh, your role as a manager and the evolution of the company, because there are some metrics. You talk about revenues. Obviously, uh, revenues is a very important metric, and and we track it like any other company. But revenue is really more uh, an effect than a cause. It's really the result of a lot of of different actions. So revenues, it, it comes in the end. It's very hard to influence directly uh but it's very easy to measure and obviously it's very big and bold and everybody's watching it so obviously we watch this one but what's very important is to understand the whole chain of what what brings revenue in the end yep. and then you start looking at metrics yep. uh, that are usually much more difficult to track uh they're not built in in, in an accounting system mm-hmm. but they're really the metrics that will that will make a difference in the future so it's really uh the activities that we do uh, the, the products that you bring to market and and all of these things will eventually uh, bring the, the end goal, which is to grow the revenues. Uh, so without talking about specific metrics, I think it's important to understand the, the type of metrics that the metrics that are very big, bold business metrics, but very hard to influence, but mm-hmm. very easy to measure. And it's very easy to zoom there. But if you only zoom there, uh, either you're going to be lucky and they're going to grow or you're going to get a lot of anxiety because they won't move as fast as you want and uh, you cannot control them. So I'd I'd much rather focus on the metrics that we have more influence and that are more cause to good business results in the end. And that's part also of the the recent years learning uh, because at at the beginning, the revenues was directly tied to my activities, was directly tied to me running around with my gripper suitcase and and selling things. Yeah. Uh, But it's- Number of calls equals number of sales. Yeah. So you said, uh,
0: you're a, a lean startup, um, uh, guy, you know, and I, that book has been circling around, uh, within my group as well lately. And I've read it, I love it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think if I was to take away one big thing from it, it's like, how do you make informed business decisions in a vacuum of information when mm-hmm. you really don't have access to metrics or something like that all the time? Yep. So when you have an idea for a new product, how do you test the waters yourself? To kind of decide if it's the right way to go how much is intuition versus trial and error or some other metrics or something like that how, how do you do that
1: yeah so that's that's uh, one thing that uh, people starting company and and you you realize this afterward uh you might be intimidated because you say oh it's business and it's financing and stuff like that but the reality is the beginning of a business it's really more of a more of a scientific approach of just putting down your hypothesis and trying to validate them. So you're not going after money. You're not going after customers. You're going uh, You're going after information. Uh, so at the beginning, it's really okay. What are your hypotheses? And go out and validate them. And to validate them, you can do it in many different ways by talking to people, by building prototypes, uh, by doing proof concepts, etc. Um, so that's that's really what I like about that uh, that approach. And it's still really built in how we develop products to this day. We really have that group, and their role is really to do exactly this, is to look at opportunities, put down hypotheses, but also find ways to get the real data, knowing, as you say, that we'll never get 100% uh, certitude. We'll never be 100% sure that we have the truth. So we really have to mix that data-driven approach, experimental approach with uh, mixing with the gut feel and the experience that we've built over the years. The experimental method
0: comes mm. back
1: to it yeah it's, the uh, we, anyway. we didn't invent that it's it's been uh, it's been around for a while yeah
0: it's good i like it thank you mm. so uh zach do you want to ask the or yeah. I, I can ask it we usually have a question we do here it. yeah yeah where um we kind of this is more of a forward looking one and it's we're thinking we're thinking like a decade out you mentioned your job, or, or the ideal scenario, would be to make you know lean robotics not even really a thing in the future because we've yeah. moved so far beyond that. So, in order to get to the utopian you know robotic powered future that we all see, uh, one of us uh, achieving one day, how what what major technologies do you think we're going to need, or convergence of technologies? And we're not talking specifically here, but like more broad ideas. Where do you think the, the next major steps in technology are? In order Mm -hmm. to get us to where we need to be
1: yeah so i still think that the 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 performance over cost ratio is still we're not there yet um and so there's the, the the two parts so the the performance i the robots in the end they have to do the job and right now they're still too limited in what they can do it's very easy uh to to make a robot trip down and 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 not being able to do his job anymore, some small change in the parts, small change in the setup, mm-hmm. uh, small change in the environment. So we still need to work in improving the performance. Um, and obviously, we talk a lot about a lot. Of, we talk a lot about the ease of use, the ease of deployment. But if we don't have the raw performance of the the robot itself, uh, mm-hmm. it's really that ratio that's important. Not only the ease of use, but also the performance. And to do this. Uh, I still believe there's going to be some advances in, in hardware. I still believe there's going to be some advance in sensing and in software and obviously putting it all uh, together. Uh, so that's really what we want to do is really uh, keep building applications and combining all of these. And in terms of the cost, it's um, I think the cost of the, the, the hardware and software is one thing, but... I still believe that the cost of deployment the cost of the project management Mm. and the cost of engineering of deploying the system is still way too high so that's Mm. the second part is definitely we got to make things that are much more easier much more uh, plug and play much more uh, modular configurable Um, so it's really these these two things evolving parallel that at some point we're gonna really uh, reach that threshold where the robots will be powerful enough, so they're going to be able to do a wide array of things in the factories, uh, but also simple enough, so a wide uh, range of companies with limited automation expertise will be able to uh, to use them. So, mm-hmm. essentially, creating thing. like
2: flexible or, you know, an ease of use factor that makes it so it's so simple to to do changeover or to do an upstart of a brand new program. Are you saying that? Your, your theory is more that it's going to, you have to make it so simple to to deploy or to redeploy a, a system.
1: So that's definitely one thing, but let's say you take an extreme case where you have something that's super easy to deploy, but mm-hmm. that in the end is making one parts a minute when you need to make one parts every five seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ease of use will not make it so it will make it but for a very limited number of use cases so that's that's why i say we really need to push in in both directions push to automate the manual task push to automate the automation process and make it very easy to use and again easy to use it's not only easy to program it's really easy to deploy so take that whole in robotics uh, process and how can you really simplify the whole process not only the programming which is definitely a big thing because programming is not necessarily a skill set that you will find in any factories. Uh, but designing a robotic system is not necessarily a skill set that you will have neither. So, you have to also simplify that part.
2: Do you see the future of the capabilities and the specs changing quite a bit within within robots or cobots, even in terms of speed, payload, um, size, and you know even just design? Do you see that the what that will look like to be quite different in 10 years
1: yeah i think the where there's going to be the biggest game is really on the the sensory motor skills and making things faster there i think the robots can go pretty fast uh so they can go from point a to point b very fast very reliably etc but then when you start to do the actual job so when you start doing an insertion for instance it still takes mm-hmm. a lot of time uh, so we really have to make that that sensory motor part of the task uh, much faster for the robot System as a whole, not only the robot. I think the robot, as they are today, are really are really powerful. But I really expect uh, a lot of advances so on the on the tooling. The last the, ten thing. centimeters. And screen. really, yeah, exactly. And really, that, that combination. So,
2: so building out the human the human like aspects to the robot more.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's something that's uh, really counterintuitive, and that uh, uh, we might have talked in the past is when you visit a, a factory, people things that are easy for humans are very difficult for robots still today yes and that's kind of hard to understand because this is so built in into what we are doing some little manual tasks so taking that glass and it's very easy for me uh but it's very difficult for a machine to recognize this go Mm -hmm. pick it and and etc so it's really uh that last piece of human capability so i think with with machines in general we've we've managed to really expand the human capability. So right now we're kind of doing hyper communication. So in the old days, we're just talking face to face. Now we can be in different places and talk. Uh, It's same thing for the the computing. It's same thing for transportation. But I think when it comes to manipulation, uh, the humans are still way superior. We don't have that uh, hyper manipulation yet. And that's kind of one of the final frontier. But one of the final... Capability of human that we haven't managed to make uh, better with machines. So yes, we have excavators and things that can pick very heavy stuff, but in terms of when it comes to the, the manual task, mm-hmm. uh, humans are way superior still. And, yeah. and we, really you know, we still got to improve on, on that front.
0: I like it. Yeah, yeah. you're right. It's kind of one of the last big frontiers is the the fine motor skills,
1: mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Interesting.
2: So we have a lot of, we have a lot of distributors that you know we work with at you are and we have a lot of distributors that are that are listeners on on the podcast is there any anything that you see that from a distributor standpoint that's changing the game right now that you think more distributors should should be looking to do
1: i think we're gonna enter or we're already entering a new phase of the market uh so i think five years ago the the customers were really the early adopters They were really happy to pick the different things together and build the system and really tinker with this and be in front of the game i think if we are to enter more of the mass market uh, we're going to need to have much more of a complete solution and and uh, that's really the the next phase that i believe and that's where we're going in terms of products yeah and also that's that's i think the the, the evolution in the mindset that uh, i think our distributors need to do is uh what made them successful in the past five years might be slightly different to what's going to make them successful in exactly. the next phase of adoption of Into the
2: early majority and, and, and how those customers will, will need a different, a different solution or a different way of, to get to that solution Yep. than what had been successful in the past few years for the people that were more, maybe willing to take on more of the responsibilities in, you know, if you look at the adoption curve within, you know, the book Crossing the Chasm, and it talks about like early adopters versus early majority and the different mindsets around those people. Is that what you're...
1: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm referring to. Um, so I believe people will be expecting more of a, a complete solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the direction we're going with uh, with our product roadmap for sure. And, yeah. and I also believe that's where the customers are going. And that's also where a lot of distributors are already going. Uh, and those who are not going, I think will we'll probably realize that in the next few months or few years. Awesome.
0: Awesome. Yeah. We're coming up on the end of the time here, Zach. You got any final questions for Sam here?
2: The last one that I had was just, if is there a mentor that really helped, you know, that's been, you know, and you probably have a bunch of people that have really, that you've worked with bounced ideas off of, but is there, you know, one or two people that, you know, you really, um, really helped you and, you know, how did they help you and, What's the relationship now?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's obviously uh, very good to talk to people who've been uh, there before. So other entrepreneurs who've been through what you're going through. Uh, it's very good to talk to your peers as well. I always find it uh, very interesting to talk to other people uh, who are kind of at the same phase or, mm-hmm. or similar phase. Uh, what I realized uh, too, uh, that's probably one of the good thing of uh, growing up is uh, being a little bit more self-aware that sometimes you need some help to see clearly in, in your head. So that's also something that I've uh, done recently doing more uh, training where I get more feedback from other people. I've also started working with a personal coach to start, try to understand what's happening in my mind and really improve the mindset and improve uh, how I work. Uh, so I really encourage people to explore these ideas. It's been very, uh, very powerful for me and uh, and very fun as well.
2: Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know I was on a call the other day with Yaro from, from Right Hand and mm-hmm. uh, and he was talking about a conversation that you guys had just recently had as well. So, uh, you know, definitely you are out talking to people that are, you know, your peers within the industry. So,
1: yeah, so, yeah, definitely. Cool. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, that's it. Um, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, guys. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Sam. Uh, Great insights today. So uh, we appreciate the time. Um, We'd probably like to have you back on in a few months. You know, we're going to get our uh, feet under us here. This will be our fifth episode with you. So uh, maybe we can have you back back on about six months' time and check in then, and then we'll be able to just hit the ground running at that point.
1: Sounds good. And hopefully we can do uh, a live session at this point.
0: Yeah,
2: that would be cool to be able to do a live one. That would be that would be very cool. Love to come up and see it. Yeah, yeah so. it's really yeah. not that far for, for us. It's funny. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, for me, I think it's only it's like five hours for me to drive uh, to Quebec City. Um, yep. The last time I did drive it, though, I think I crashed my car. So we're gonna we're gonna maybe. You think? No, that was two times ago. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Times ago. yeah. Yeah. But you're wow. safe now, you cannot cross the borders. So that yeah. kind of solved, a little uh... bla- black black yeah. ice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They don't let me in there anymore. No, yeah. yeah and <laughs> neither, neither could I come. So but definitely I'm looking forward to that. And uh pleasure to talk to you guys. Uh, great work with the podcast. And uh hopefully Thanks, people Sam. find it interesting.
0: Awesome. Cool. Thank you so Thank much. You. Have a great day. Uh, uh, intro, Zach, or should we try and record one? Let's rip it. Let's do
2: one now, too. And we'll just see what happens and I can chop them all in. Cool. Well, that was uh that was really interesting um just so much so fast you know and i think he answered the questions and it was just a lot where you know there was no delays or you know him extending it it was just lots of content and lots of great questions and in a relatively short amount of time. So yeah. that was just It was awesome. a
0: cool cat too. You know, he, he takes any question in stride and always has a good answer for it. You know, I, I don't think he really uh, skirted anything. So he yeah. was completely honest uh, with all the stuff we had for him.
2: I think the cool thing about him is he's constantly seeking improvement. You can just see it, right? I mean, everything he's doing is to better himself, to better his company, to better everything around him and wants feedback. You know, I mean, even the first thing he said to us was just, you know, thank you so much for the feedback on that. You know, I think we might need to redo, you know, try more with the book because, you know, we were, you know, so fangirling about the book fanboying about the book. So it's yeah. just, you know, we, to me, that was the most impactful thing that I saw from it. It's just his willingness to be better. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a good episode this week for sure with Sam Bouchard from Robotique.
2: Yeah, we uh we unpacked a lot with him. Talked about his the bootstrapping, getting into what has created his success and what metrics he uses as his his management style, and as well as um, where where he thinks the future is going, and and some tidbits he thinks that distributors need to distributors of robot solutions need to be looking for and, and attempting to to change their mindset on uh, going forward into the future.
0: Yes, sir. All right, I think that was pretty good, Zach. I think so too.